This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of the world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Comedy, formerly Raw Dog. I just got an email that the name has been changed. Yeah, they changed it again. Oh, I didn't... What was it, what was it before? It was Raw Dog. Don't you remember? It was... Uh the Comedy Channel or something? or yeah, well, In any case, yeah, yeah. it's now Raw Comedy yeah. uh, and also available as a podcast. Uh, I'm here with Noam Dorman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, Perry Alashin brand. And we have with us via Riverside uh, Teleconferencing, Liel Leibovitz joins <laughs> us, an Israeli-born journalist, author, media critic, and video game scholar. Video game scholar? Shalom. I don't know if we'll get to the video games or not, but uh, we should start with that. Okay. Liel also has a new book that just came out. Do you want to tell us what it's called? How the Talmud Can Change Your Life. Surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. And it makes the argument that the 2,711 page, 63 volume Talmud is the world's greatest self help book ever written. Wow. Okay. I'm not. T uh, the only thing I know about the Talmud is what is what uh, anti-Semites post about how it's supposed to be <laughs> this evil book. I don't know if you have any uh, quick commentary on, on some of that. Uh, that uh, My uh, only commentary is that, as always, the anti-Semites seem to be way more familiar with the Talmud than any Jew. Okay. All right, so, so uh, actually you've written a couple articles and, um, and now you've brought in the Talmud and anti-Semitism and... And I guess we'll leave video games. I, I don't. I don't know if I can draw video games into the whole thing. But um, let's start with uh, Barack Obama's. Uh, now I see a countdown on the screen. What's going on there? Was, uh, I'm recording just that as like a backup, but we have. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's start with Barack Obama's. Um, pretty upsetting, I would say. Uh, uh, remarks on this whole Hamas. Gaza thing. First he, he first he wrote something. I don't know if it was a Substack or whatever, however you released it. And then there was on this Pod Save America thing where he talked about us us all being complicit. But all, all uh, of us. Yeah, all of us complicit. And then his com his complicity seemed to be that uh although he had the scars to show it, uh, he's he thinks maybe you know, was there something possibly that I that I could have done that I that I didn't do? That's his complicity. I mean, I mean, listen, I've never been an Obama basher, but I mean, it's time maybe to to uh, consider that he's some kind of narcissist in, in some way. But anyway, what what's your take on the whole Obama thing? Go ahead. Well, look, I I totally fell for it in uh, 2000. The first time he ran, I took off three months uh, off my life and went to canvas for him knocking on doors in trailer parks in Pennsylvania. I really believed in the guy. I thought he had a good uh, good message. But uh, can I stop you there? Because be, actually. Let me just stop you right there because it's interesting to me. But, but are, are you religious? Did I see a kippah? Yeah. Uh, there's not one in my head right now, but, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a drunk Jew. That's You're the only Jew. affiliation I'm attesting to. Okay, so, <laughs> so we found out pretty early. I'm sorry to stop you, but it's just interesting, and I'm afraid we won't be able to get back to it. We found out pretty early with Obama that he had been in the thrall of Reverend Wright, who was a vicious mm -hmm. anti-Semite. Uh, it was not believable that Obama knew that Wright was not a vicious anti-Semite. Obama dedicated his, or named his book, The Audacity of Hope, whatever it was, which was uh, taken from a Reverend Wright's sermon. Wright uh, had married him. Wright was his mentor. How did you rationalize all that uh, at that time? 
Well, the thing that really helped was that it came after, you know, eight years of Bush and the war in Iraq, which I initially was kind of, you know, mildly enthusiastic about, but then saw the great disaster that it was. And so I said to myself, look, whatever else this guy is, he's a much needed course correction to some of our misadventures. And then you sit and you watch him, you know, say, oh, there will be red lines in Syria, and if they're crossed, we will come and intervene. And then these lines are crossed and then we do nothing. And then you watch him come up with the Iran deal and provide the murderous mullahs in Tehran with hundreds of billions of dollars. Wait, but wait, 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 wait. Now, I don't mean to press you on this, but I, f I find this interesting, just Jew to Jew, Jew to Jew to Jew to Jew, <laughs> because a lot of people did rationalize what, in another context, if it was a white guy going to a white church where they were saying these and and the, the the preacher had these attitudes about Jews we would have run in the opposite direction the second we we saw this guy we would not have found these answers satisfactory because you're just too close to a guy who's celebrating Jew hatred but uh, you're not exactly alone I don't and I'm not calling you out I'm just asking how did you, you get so how did you get past that at that time just because you hated Bush I was I was born in Israel so <laughs> I don't I don't speak race you know, this, these kind of very American, intricate obsession with, with race and slavery and guilt are totally foreign to me. And so I don't think I even picked up on that, to be okay. honest. I don't okay. think I knew very much what Jeremiah Wright was and, and what it stood for. It was just like, okay, well, you know, everyone has skeletons in their closet. Does that make sense? No, if you didn't know, you didn't know. I get that. No. that that's, a, that's, that's a good answer. That's usually the answer. I mean, I think in general, racism coming from white people and anti-Semitism coming from white people is always scarier um, than, than the same thing coming from the black community, I, I think, in general. Not to me. Anyway, I, 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 I mean, I, I understand that temptation, but the moral defect in some ways is, I've always found, more offensive from people who spent their lives uh, uh, on the receiving end of bigotry because you would hope that someone who has been a victim of it would have even less tolerance for such things. So it depends which way you want to look at it. And, and I, I actually, although I gave Obama the benefit of that, I kind of forgot about it after a while. At the time it was going on, I was not at all satisfied with his answers about Reverend Wright, and I thought his speech where he kind of you know, that uh, Chris Matthews said, wasn't that? They said a chill up his leg and we should read it every right. year like the Gettysburg Address. I thought the speech was logically <laughs> flawed. And um, I just thought the whole thing was bull. But I, 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 I guess I would have written it off as um, that's the way it was in Chicago politics at that time. And whatever. I didn't mean to get hung up on that. I just, I just thought maybe you might have some insight. Anyway, so continue. So go ahead. So now, now fast forward to wherever you want. I'm sorry to, to sidetrack. Fast forward to, to watching him uh, not intervene in Syria. Fast forward to watching him empower the Iranian mullahs. And all of a sudden you look at it and you understand, oh, wow, this person is not only in charge of these disastrous policies in the Middle East, but he seems to have a view of America that is radically different, not just from Republicans, but literally from every other Democrat before or after him. Here's a person who actually doesn't seem to believe in American exceptionalism or, for that matter, in American power. That's when I stopped and said, whoa, that's uh, one of these things is not like the other. 
You know, there's an issue that this touches on. I'm almost afraid to bring it up, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up because it's always fascinated me that <clears throat> depending on what, what, what the situation is, where we either feel totally comfortable or totally outraged bringing up a person's dossier to charge them with likeliness, the likelihood of bias. So, for instance, uh, it becomes, it's perfectly reasonable to say, well, you know, Trump appointed that judge, so therefore we can't trust right. that judge's opinion. But then if Trump says, well, that, uh, uh, he's a Mexican judge and he's, in, he's, he's a member of La Raza and, I, and I'm building a wall, I don't trust. How dare you question a judge's, uh, you can say, uh, you can't trust a, a white guy to uh, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, you can say, well, of course, uh, uh, um, you know, Bill Crystal and David Frum being uh, Jews are going to be pro-Israel, whatever it is. But there was this um, line drawn around the fact that you might speculate that in some human way, and this is not actually a knock on him, but that in some human way, having been raised, uh, was it Indonesia and uh, having a Muslim father, that he was just sympathetic to Islam and Muslim points of view in a way that no previous American politician ever had been, and that we, we should have seen that coming. Now, again, that is not a knock on him, because I would imagine that, like, uh, you know, any, any, like, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Blinken said, as a Jew, I'm upset. You know, this is, this is the most human kind of thing in the world. But you can only talk about it in certain cases, and other times you just assume it, right? Look, I blame something much more pernicious than a childhood in Indonesia or, or religious faith. I, I blame Columbia University, the, the madrasa of anti-American imperialism. House, go ahead, continue. It, it, what, now, he went there a long time ago, though. He did. It was like that then? Oh, I, I firmly believe so. Again, I, I'm, uh, I'm a little dim. I'm a little slow to catch up on things. I didn't necessarily know that while getting my own education at Columbia University. But if you look at the institution, and for that matter, uh, all of our Ivy League universities, if you see the, uh, the Nazi-making factories that they've become, I think it's reasonable to believe that a person like Obama goes to a college like that with people like Edward Said who tell him, well, you know, it's all Orientalism. It's all, you know, white guilt. It's all the fault of the West, it's not hard to assume that person would get a worldview that doesn't necessarily like America that much. Now, when you say Nazi-making, you mean you're being hyperbolic, or you don't, you don't Oh, live. no, I, at this point, I really am not. <laughs> Go ahead, what do you mean by that? Look, look, look at what happened to these campuses. You, you have uh, Jewish noses smashed in Tulane. You have Jewish heads smashed in Columbia. You have people at Cooper Union literally having to hide. You have people in a college in California suggested by the librarian to hide in the attic because they have a, a pro-Hamas mob marching on campus. This is a very different world now than anything most hiding of it, us Hiding in an attic doesn't even have a good track record, does it? No, <laughs> it doesn't end well. well. We, <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. I'm sure it worked for some people, not just not the most famous case. Oh, that's, that's fair enough. We don't know about that's the most. Like, she really gives other attic hiders a bad name. <laughs> so listen, I just want to be clear about the, the Obama thing. I, I really, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I'm, it's not a knock on any human being that they are prone to sympathy to their heritage I, th I think it's the most natural thing 
there there is and um just it's just interesting to me that you 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 can bring these sorts of things up with out risk in certain directions and in other directions is considered to be a uh, you know totally uncalled right, for but you know I, th there's something that really is always fascinating me it's like I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan and i never understood while the people who run baseball seem to really hate baseball and want to make it as unlike baseball as possible it's the same thing with obama i mean if you grow up and you have a worldview that sees this country as predominantly somehow uh, sinful, of uh, guilty of some great big charge, uh, then why is this your course of action? Yeah, and also his father apparently uh, had a, had a worldview that that cast uh, America as kind of um, an, a uh, a villain in in some senses around the world. And then he came from Chicago politics at the time. What was what was the name? Was it Jeff? Uh, Shit, my memory's going. But there was a guy uh, in that circle who was blaming Jews for inventing AIDS. Co Coakley, was that his name? You need to do a fact check on that, Coakley. But uh, uh, anyway, so, so there was, there's, a, there's a lot there. But, of course, he had um, Axelrod and, and Ari Emanuel and a lot of uh, very uh, um, pro-Israel Jews who embraced it and surrounded him. And, and none of them seem to have come out since the administration and knocked him on his uh, actual sympathies or, or lack of sympathy towards the Jewish state. So, you know, he managed it with some finesse even around people very close to him, right? I mean, Ari Emanuel, certainly not going to be uh, Rahm Emanuel. I mean, Rahm Emanuel certainly not going to be soft on, on Israel. Right, but Obama is, I mean, the, the point is that Obama is still in power. He's the only president since, I believe, Woodrow Wilson, who finished his term and did not leave Washington, D.C. And Woodrow Wilson at the time, I believe, was incapac incapacitated by a stroke and could, literally could not move. <laughs> yeah, his, 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 uh, his wife was running and he had that, that advisor, what was his name, House, was that his name? Who was, uh, who was running things, anyway. Um, all right, so what is Obama's hip hypocrisy here? There was, uh, I've been reading about the way that we conducted our military operation in Mosul. Are you familiar with all that stuff? I am familiar with that. Tell us about that. That is, that, that is one thing. Look, uh, to, to come and have uh, orchestrated yourself attacks that ended up with very limited military gains and cost the lives of tens of thousands of innocent civilians already puts you in a special category. But I think his hypocrisy is even greater because throughout his entire uh, tenure, his main foreign policy goal, the Iran uh, was kind of a bait and switch. You know, he told the American public, we are only doing this to keep Iran from getting the bomb. In reality, we now know, because there's enough time and enough testimonies uh, have, have passed, that what he meant is to integrate Iran into the Middle East, to create a brand new Middle East in which these murderous mullahs are much more empowered and much more central, which Obama genuinely believed would bring balance and peace to the Middle East. It was an insane belief, and the most duplicitous thing that he ever did is not be forthright about it and be like, look, this is what I believe, because he knew that it sounded crazy. But didn't he believe more likely that, and this is the mistake we seem to have made with China, that by bringing Iran into the, you know, the, the, the rest of the world, that eventually this would lead to the demise of the mullahs? Because, yes. because Iran was supposed to be like a more cosmopolitan society, which I think they are actually, right? Um, that was his insane belief. 
All right, well. Get the guns. <laughs> you know, it, it, it seems to have turned out not to have worked out. I, I, I'm, I was not disposed to uh, think it would work out, but I do want to acknowledge that a lot of serious thinkers thought that it would, you know. Here's where I call the bluff, because in 2009, uh, we had the Green Revolution in Iran. We had hundreds of thousands of young Iranians marching in the streets and begging the United States, please help us. We would like to overthrow these people who are throwing homosexual off roofs, who are uh, forcing women to cover themselves, who are doing terrible things to us. Rather than the United States saying, oh, well, if the goal was a democratic, thriving Iran, hey, we just got a shortcut to the end goal that we want here. Let's help these good people overthrow these tyrants and, and restore freedom and be worthy of you know, our American promise. Obama did whatever he could to stand on the side of the mullahs. I mean, this makes absolutely no sense. Well, there was, there was another predicament that he was in, which I, I sort of remember, which was that the intelligence was saying that Iran had something like a six to eight month breakout period for a bomb. And he was kind of up against it. And th by making that deal, although the deal expired in like 10, 15 years, whatever it was, I don't remember the details, 15 years, uh, he was kicking the can down the road for something like 15 years, playing for time in the hope that maybe in those 15 years, things would, the situation would change. And then somehow this could all be avoided because if he had just said no flat out to the deal at that moment, wouldn't there, wasn't there a good chance Iran would have a bomb by now? I, I think only a professor could be stupid enough to believe that. <laughs> well, go ahead. That's fine. But, it's, but why is that? Why is it stupid well, enough? First of all, because it, it doesn't make any sense on, on the surface. If you truly believe that Iran is close to a nuclear weapon, you have, in your capacity as the commander-in-chief of the greatest army in the world, enough means, even without sending American boys into war, which is something that none of us want, a lot of means, including very, very, very major sanctions, that could retard Iran's ability to reach the bomb in significant ways, as we had seen the moment someone whose name was not Barack Obama took office. You could do things, and, and Lord knows I, I have uh, my share of criticism on, on the demon emperor, uh, Donald Trump, uh, but by doing things like targeting Qasem Soleimani and doubling down on the sanctions in Iran, we now have proof that these measures work very well, even without putting American lives at risk. So to say, oh, it was inevitable, the only way to do it was to support the Iranians and hope for the best, uh, that just doesn't hold water. You're, you're right. In retrospect, uh, there's nothing I can say. It's a high-stakes game, a high-stakes game that the, the commander had to play. And um, yeah. I... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the person who's predisposed to be on your side of all these issues. But I remember at the time thinking that um, this was a tough one. But once I heard that there was six to eight month breakout period, I really didn't know or I didn't feel that I knew enough to know what the right thing to do was. Well, maybe, but Maybe let the Israelis bomb them like they wanted to do. That would have solved a bunch of problems. Yeah, when, 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 I can remember now. When was Stuxnet? Was that at this time, after that time? Around that time. Around that time, so that so that that bought us a lot of time, right? And and what did Obama do? Uh, you know, kind of like kneecap Israel at every turn. So okay, so let's get to it. So what do you think motivates Obama? A naive worldview or a uh, a uh, anti-Israel bent? 
Do I have to choose? Can it give me, or, well, can it be or? well, let's start with the uh, second one. Do you think he has and came into office with some sort of bias towards Israel or, or the Jewish state? I think he looks at the world. I think he looks at the Middle East. I think he says to himself, rightly, America should not be in business in, in this quarter of the world. And then he looks at the uh, potential partners here. He looks at the Saudis, right? Uh, the Saudis are basically Republicans. He said, like, I can't be with these guys because they're basically members of the Bush family. He looks at the Israelis and he says, these guys are assholes. Uh, they're, they're bearded. Uh, they have religion. They are not the most trustworthy uh, partners and, and from my point of view and it looks at the Iranians he's like okay you know they're powerful they're a minority because they're Shia in a largely Sunni Middle East and as you said they have a young population maybe if we invest in them it will be okay I, I think I don't want to ascribe any kind of anti-semitic sentiments I don't know the person and I, I don't like kind of you know analyzing humans I, I had not met uh, but I think it's perfectly feasible even without malice to see why he would uh, why he would own in on the Iranians, except for again the second thought after this first thought ought to have been oh wait this is a genocidal terrorist spreading Holocaust denying maniacal regime that we absolutely should not be invested. What about That's the fact What about the fact that uh, Bill Clinton, who I think demonstrated deep affection for Israel and for mm -hmm. Rabin and for Barack. Um, could not stand Benjamin Netanyahu. And Obama was cursed with, uh, I believe, eight years of Benjamin Netanyahu. So it, to be fair, one does have to acknowledge that there's one constant there is that, that no American president has been able to get on well with, with Netanyahu. Most Israelis these days are not getting along well with Netanyahu, so I understand that completely. Uh, but I think it's a matter of gradations, right? Look, uh, Obama ended his term quite literally in, in December of 2016 by becoming the first American president in 43 years, I believe, to not veto a vicious anti-Israel uh, decision or, or resolution at the United Nations Security Council. Tell everybody, not just the listeners won't know what, that, what the details said. The, the details are, it was, I think it was something to do with settlements, uh, and the United States usually vetoes such, uh, such condemnations from the UN Security Council. This time, Barack Obama decided to go out with a bang and say, we're not going to veto it. We're going to let this resolution pass because Israelis need to be taught a lesson. And what was uh, wrong? Famously, he also is the one who called Bibi Netanyahu chicken shit. You know, there is, there is disliking a leader and even a cabinet on a, on a sort of personal or, or ideological level. But then there is still the larger kind of outlay of commitment to this country in which you say, look, I'm not going to burn the building down even though I don't like this asshole. What was, I don't think made that distinction. I mean, um, quite, a few quite a few people on the left and on the right uh, think that these settlements are, are an unnecessary provocation to the entire issue. And they certainly are one of the first things out of the mouths of young Americans when they're uh, you know, explaining why they don't like Israel. So why was Obama wrong for abstaining uh, on that resolution? For so many reasons. Let's, let's, let's start with, with one. And let's start with a simple example. For years, we have been told that if the United States moved its embassy to Jerusalem, which is something that American presidents have promised to do since, I believe, Ronald Reagan, um, there will be riots. There will be blood in the streets because the Arabs will never accept it. 
in marches the demon emperor and says, okay, watch me, hold my beard. And he does so. He moves the American embassy to Israel. And you know what happens? Nothing happens. So first of all, let's, I think it's really important that we all remember that a lot of the uh, perceived wisdoms of Washington when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are simply blatant lies. They're just, uh, you know, ossified theories that have proven themselves again and again and again to be silly. But even if you believed very firmly that Israel had no right to settle in Judea and Samaria, these would be, by the way, Jews who come from Judea, uh, even if you believe that that was very detrimental to uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace, you still have to kind of stop and say, okay, look, I have two regimes here. One is kind of uh, assholeish, but traditionally our, you know, kind of strongest ally. So at the very least, I could put a veto in place and support it. The other is a literal terrorist organization led by a sclerotic octogenarian that still pays thousands of dollars to every Palestinian who murders Jews out of American aid dollars. So this does not strike me as a particularly difficult choice, either strategically or morally. But that, so you support the settlements, is that right? Personally, I, I don't uh, think that I don't even understand the term settlements. We're looking at international agreements. We're looking at a green line that was drawn after the 1967 war. And we're looking at an attempt to reach some kind of reconciliation between Israelis and Palestinians. Personally, I don't understand how you could reconcile with people who all across the board, in Gaza and in the West Bank, Hamas and PLO alike, are committed to killing you. To me, it's, it's almost a non-question. I can only negotiate and make these distinctions with people who don't want to behead babies. Well, I, and you're saying that the, the, the PLO in the West Bank wants to behead babies like Hamas? It, the PLO still spends a considerable amount of its budget, again, under Biden and under Obama before him, although Trump put it into it, um, still spends millions and millions of dollars of, of aid money giving, paying salaries to individuals or families of individuals who had murdered Jews. This is called the pay for slay program. That, I think, tells you everything you need to know about their intentions, because if these people wanted to negotiate peacefully and, and in goodwill, they could have achieved this a very long time ago. For a very long time, there's nothing that Israelis wanted more than for the two-state solution, for the Oslo Accord framework to work. Palestinians did whatever they from Yasser Arafat to Abu Mazen to Hamas to make sure that never happens. Well, that's for sure. I, I agree with you on that. But I am curious if you, if Israel continues to settle and spread their settlements out in the West Bank to the areas that uh, are not kind of assumed to be part of the, you know, would, would Israel would, part of the, the areas that Israel would retain in return for land swaps, but like to really get out there, um, it seems like Israel would then be uh, uh, embarking on a future which would mean at some point a, a Palestinian majority or a, right. huge, a huge number of Palestinians without rights within Israel. It's a really complicated conflict. Right. So why why would why would anybody want to like what what's the gain by pursuing a policy like that even if everything you say is true and the and the tremendous price Israel pays public relations wise 
with the world and the, I'm sure you've seen the horrible way that the settlers behave from time to time. Why would we, as Israelis, I want to go down answer. that road? The, 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 the minuses just seem to outweigh the pluses on that. I hear you completely. Everything that you say is absolutely true and, 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 and smart and justified, except I think many Israelis received an answer to this question, and a very grim one on October 7th this year, because in 2005, we left Gaza. Uh, we left it gleefully, even though it meant uh, uprooting tens of thousands of Israelis from their homes, which was very difficult for Israel's society to do. What we reasoned uh, would happen is we would have complete separation. They would be there. We would be here. Uh, we would give them some work permits to alleviate uh, their, their condition. We would try to do uh, things as humanely as possible, but we would be separate. And we saw again and again and again, year after year, attacks, rockets culminating in, in the murderous pogrom of October 7th. So everything that you say is right, except for everything that Israelis are saying right now is also right, that when they're trying to disengage or trying to empower Palestinians or trying to withdraw their own civilians from, from Palestinian populated areas, uh, they seem to only be bringing the murderers closer to Israeli homes. Look, I think there will need to be some kind of solution. I think the solution will at some point probably have to do with some sort of uh, population swap slash uh, redrawing of maps slash uh, uprooting of communities. It will be a very difficult uh, solution for some Palestinians and for many, many Israelis. Uh, but I think the first thing that needs to happen is for Palestinians, both of the secular PLO brand and of the religious Hamas brand, to understand that this attempt to eliminate and annihilate us, it just ain't going to work. All right. Something I, happened with his video. Yeah, it's pitch black. It's, I can't see the. Uh, I no, can't see. We we said it to turn dark when people are saying something we don't agree with. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Let me try and uh, turn out the light because it's getting dark here in Miami. Hey, maybe that's the issue. Uh, no. Do we want to uh, talk about something that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah listen, I, I'm not. Um, yeah. We let him figure his lights. I'm not. Uh, Hold on. I don't know what I feel about everything, but I do feel like. Israel would be much better off, definitely not pursuing these settlements and, um, you know, obviously pursuing the, the peace process, even even if it's just uh, um, knowing that it, it's not going to work. Well, there you are. All this right. Well, not, light. well, it's as good as we we're going to do. Okay. Um, do you want to get to the guns, uh, Noam? So, yeah, you've, you've written a column. Let's get to guns. You wrote a column in the New York Post suggesting that Jewish people purchase uh, in tablet. In, in, tablet. in tablet. That Jews, yes. that Jews uh, buy guns? Yes, sir. I'm surprised Alana uh, went for this. She's not a gun type. Uh, we're all gun types now. Well, so, well uh, I, 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 I would just go ahead. preface by saying, you know, I saw a lot of people on Twitter and Instagram uh, posting this, what I thought was awful meme of, would you hide me? Right. And, uh, you know, Jews saying, you know, oh, it's come to this. We got to ask our non-Jewish friends, would you hide me? And to, to those people, I say, well, we do it. If you really think it's come to that, I don't believe it's come to that or it's anywhere near that. But if you truly believe that it's come to that, we do have a Second Amendment that you might want to check out. And again, I don't think That's it's come to that. But if, if you do think it's come to that, then you should be on board with the Second Amendment. 
Hallelujah. What has gone on here? Did I just did I just fall into an alt right? Uh... There, there are people posting <laughs> memes now. I'm saying, what Jews saying? Would you hide me? So, okay, so I'm sorry. So do you don't you think that if you think that it's that bad, that maybe you should be a little bit more enthusiastic about your constitutional right to have a gun? Yes, yes. I, I, I don't think that's what. When Noam's the most left-wing person in the room. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't think we're talking about the. I, I think we're, you're talking more about the risk of street crime, street attacks. Uh, yeah, I don't think you're thinking about uh, actually just being rounded up. And, well, and having, having to hide, do you? Well, <laughs> well, if they're street attacks, then you'd have to hide from those too, I would imagine. Right, but, but would you hide me means like a, like a, an but, authority was going to come right. to. But whatever, well, however you want to explain it, tell tell us why you think Jews are at the point now where they should be considering self-defense like that. So look, I obviously don't think that the year is 1943, and I don't think that the you know Columbia-educated Einsatzgruppen would uh, march and round up all the Jews from the Trader Joe's on 93rd and Columbus. Uh, I don't think any of that is happening. I think it's still America. I think we're still great. I think we're still blessed. But you're also seeing, uh, especially in cities where I live, in, in Upper West Side of New York and, and elsewhere in large uh, towns, uh, you see instances of violence that you never saw before. Uh, you see attacks, you see brazen kind of anti-Semitic incidents. Uh, we saw a, a Jewish man uh, be killed just the other day for waving an Israeli flag at a Palestinian protest, uh, being you know violently shoved to the ground, hitting his head and dying. Uh, I think when that happens, you do need to reevaluate your safety uh, personally, especially when it comes on the heels of a large movement uh, for weakening uh, and, and defunding police forces all over, all over the country. We see in, in, in New York, we see the police, you know, really markedly less and less and less interested and capable in maintaining the peace in these skirmishes uh, for a whole host of totally understandable reasons. So if that's the climate, uh, and you really do believe that there is danger, there's a really sensible arrangement uh, pr protected uh, by the Second Amendment to the Constitution. Get a gun and be safe. Do, do you, so, and responsible. Can, can I just say one thing? And right. I'll, 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 so I, I, I will be pleased with myself in one sense that I find that I, I can't resist the same kind of arguments that I would normally make even when I would like to embrace... The position being spoken, but as to this guy who was "quote unquote" killed, is it was it in Los Angeles? Yes. Mm -hmm. Paul Kessler. Uh, yeah, I I don't think that I'm satisfied that I know what happened. If there was an altercation, now altercations happen all the time, and if the guy fell in that altercation. That's what happened. Uh, and and broke his head. He was hit died. with a megaphone. Well, he was right hit now. in the head with a megaphone first. Yep. So what happened? Tell me exactly what happened. He was hit in the phone with head with a megaphone and then fell and hit his head and then he died. So, but well, I guess what I'm saying is that do we know that the the person who killed him was trying to use deadly force or was just just a fight? Like I've I've been involved in so many bar fights where people pick up stuff, cue balls, whatever it is. You know, I I just don't know that. Well, this no, is, I, I just don't want. I, I don't want to forgive it because the violence alone is enough, but I don't want to. I don't want to conflate it with somebody who went out looking to kill a Jew. Well, I. I mean, he. Somebody hit him in the head with a megaphone with enough force 
that he was knocked to the ground. I mean, this was a 65 or a 69-year-old man. I, I've seen both numbers written. He was, as far as all reports have gone, was peacefully protesting, and he was hit in the head. I think what oh, Noam is saying. I think what Noam is saying is, in that particular instance, would a, would the use of a gun have been legal? Guy takes a megaphone. He's about to hit you with a megaphone. I think it would be legal. Are you allowed to shoot a guy with a megaphone? I think you are. I think that a a bevy, a, a gaggle, uh, a minion, if you will, of <laughs> armed Jews will make it so that people will think twice or three times before raising a hand to a Jewish person. Yeah, I, I should I should learn the facts on that. I just, um, you know, you see this kind of thing all the time. But but uh, there's no question. There's been there's a lot going on. But legally. From a self, from a self-defense standpoint, um, you know, at what point some guy pushes you, says "fuck you," pushes you, you can't just shoot him. But I think you can hit somebody. I, I think if you're, uh, if you're about to get hit up the head with a, with a heavy metal, with a, with object, a blunt instrument, you, you can a you saxophone. Can you don't have to get hit in it. You don't have. There's, there's no requirement to get hit over the head with a metal. Guys, my my, my daddy is a bank robber. I, I learned uh, very different rules at home. It's the, uh, you sent one of ours to the ER, we sent two of yours to the morgue type of mentality where I come from. Oh, that's... Uh, do, do you, now in New York City, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more likely to get attacked outside of my home, which means for a gun to be effective, I'd need to have a concealed carry permit. How, how, how hard is that to get in New York? It's almost impossible, as I understand. Uh, you're asking amazing questions. So first of all, it is very difficult, which is why we sued uh, a, a whole host of us gun nuts, uh, not me personally, but people that I, I know and love and support. Uh, we sued the state and went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court found, of course, that uh, New York's behavior was unconstitutional. So what did the geniuses, led by Governor K Katie ha Kathy Hochul, do? They went ahead and said, okay, you could have concealed carry permits, except that there are 20 uh, restrictions called uh, sensitive zones in which you cannot carry a gun, even with a permit. They include uh, churches and synagogues and mosques, parks, schools, uh, theaters, the subway, the entirety of Times Square. So literally, yeah, you could carry a gun to protect yourself, except for not if you want to take the subway or walk by a park, a school, a church, or 42nd Street. But isn't there ample evidence that without really strict laws about who can buy guns, which, as we well know, that in this country are complete garbage, that it's a real, real problem, as we see with every, you know, turning page of the n news on an almost daily basis? We're just talking about any Jews buy gun, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Only Jews are permitted to buy guns. Perilla, you're completely right, except for all the other people who buy guns without permits who right. are in charge of or responsible for, you know, such a vast majority of, of these gun deaths. If you look at gun statistics, you discover two very, very interesting things. First of all, uh, three interesting things. First of all, that these great big, uh, you know, tragedies like Columbine uh, or the shooting of the Florida high school uh, are simply a, a drop in the bucket, statistically speaking. They're not... Uh, not thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year lose their lives this way. What you do discover are the way people do lose their lives to gun violence are two other things. Uh, first of all, uh, gang-related violence, which are people who do not have gun permits, obviously, and ask Chicago how well uh, it works to make guns very, very hard to get legally. 
Uh, and then the majority, by which I believe more than like 62% of, of gun deaths in this country are caused by suicides, which teaches you that you have a major, major mental health crisis, which are all these people going to kill themselves if they don't have guns? No, you could probably have saved a whole host of them if they didn't have ready access to a firearm. But then that only tells you that you could solve this problem by instituting a bunch of laws and regulations that allow, for example, family members to report uh, mental conditions to law enforcement officials and have those officials confiscate temporarily a firearm uh, from an individual who is considered to be at risk. There are good solutions to this problem. We're just not interested in trying them because it has become an, an item of almost like, you know, religiously zealous uh, convictions between two sides who are not willing to compromise it. I'm a little bit confused about where the state of the law is in New York. So so it's still the law that you that you can't conceal carry uh, on the subway and in, 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 in what's the law as it stands now? You cannot conceal carry on the subway. You can have a concealed carry uh, CCW permit, uh, but there are, as I said, all these limitations and restrictions to them, though I assume that there will be another lawsuit very quickly that will allege correctly that also these restrictions are not constitutional. Now, say I'm on the subway, and I do have a, a, a permit to conceal carry, and I see somebody harassing uh, one subway rider harassing another subway rider, yelling in their face, and maybe it even they start to push that person um, you know, maybe maybe a fight breaks up between them. What what can I do as a as a as a as a well, gun? If, if anything, is there anything you're not I can? to have the gun on the subway to begin. Well, with. I'm saying if 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 I do have have permission to have a gun on the subway, just theoretically, legally speaking, what can I do? Say a guy punches another guy in the subway and starts a f and they they and and I mean, you know, you're you're allowed to use a gun to save the life of a, of a third party. But what if it's just a, a fist fight? Theoretically, I find, and, and this is something that I learned from serving in, in the Israel Defense Forces, uh, I find that there are two categories uh, of, of situations in which a gun would come in handy. There's the very extreme cases in which there are uh, people who are out there to kill you, and you shoot to kill them first and save your own life and lives of innocent people. That is, uh, thankfully, not a situation we see very often. The other situation is a situation in which there are uh, situations that escalate, as you said, like fistfights, like something that is just bubbling on the cusp or on the verge of violence, in which just the introduction of a firearm to the scene has a almost magical effect to calm everyone down because you just changed the balance of power. And you said, look, don't force me to use this thing. Uh, my experience is that usually that makes everyone sort of back off and be like, okay, this is no longer a fair fight. One of us has a gun. But I, I often hear the, uh, the axiom that uh, you don't take a gun out unless you're going to use it. So you, but you're proposing taking out a gun as a threat as opposed to taking out a gun with the immediate intent to fire it. I am proposing... Uh, and, and Perry Allen, I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear this, though you may not believe me. I'm proposing responsible gun ownership, uh, which is gun ownership that comes with some restrictions and licensing, which is something that sadly most of my gun nut buddies do not support, which comes with extensive training on how to use it, but also with, with, with training and understanding on which situations uh, would benefit from the introduction of this firearm and which situations would only escalate if you, uh, if you revealed your weapon. I think that is something that you could be trained for. In fact, there are entire academies for tactical training that do exactly that. And if you made every person who wanted a gun license go through some, you know, minimal training, I think you would be much better off. All right. Well, I, I'm not. Um, I don't think I'm 
on board with this. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't, I don't, for some reason, this could be my own failure to, to get it. I, I don't see our future as Jews being particularly worried about violence, although I do expect to see some kind of uptick of some kind of violence uh, during this period of the war. I expect that to calm down. My biggest fear is uh, cer certainly I don't, I don't think Jews are going to experience the kind of violence that um, everybody was worried about just, you know, 20 years ago in Manhattan um, and didn't get guns. But my, my biggest fear has been for a long time that we are being made into Afrikaners, that, uh, that being Jewish, you know how when somebody uh, comes over and you meet them and they say, where are you from? You say, well, I'm, I'm German. And there's a kind of like awkward pause where the, where the German guy feels a little, is, is wondering how you're going to react. And it's just a little, like even, even this all these years later, if you, if you lay down that fact, oh, I'm, I'm German. So, ah, okay, well, you know, no problem. I don't care that you're German. <laughs> it's awkward. I think that this is where we're coming to um, with being Jewish, that there's just like a slight stigma associated with it, and doubly so if you embrace it, if you embrace the identity in any kind of conspicuous way, with a Jewish star, wearing a chai, having a Star of David in your restaurant window like we do, wanting, a, wanting to take a semester abroad, uh, you name it. And this is a tremendous step back for the Jewish community in America who, you know, was probably living more free more freely than any jewish community in, in the history of the world you know i'm not an expert on jewish history but certainly it was an unusual time in jewish history we're regressing to the mean uh the the ideology of the young which is intersectional and progressive and identity-based does not bode well for any turnaround on that the the future of israel uh not being able to make peace with um its neighbors who are ready and willing to use the pictures that are of their own people dying as part of their PR war to, to, to ostracize Israel on the world stage. All of this seems like um, intractable and very, very, very depressing problems and a very, very depressing future coming to us. I don't think a Holocaust has to be, or even, you know, murder of Jews has to be the alarm that we're crying. I think just having to live the life that I've just described is more than enough, more than enough for Jews to feel that this is a five-alarm fire, that my kids will likely not be able to have the carefree Jewish existence that I did as a citizen of the United States of America is heartbreaking to me. And I don't know that gun I, that guns will solve that. I can't that. tell you how strongly I disagree with you. Okay. I, I, I think look, there is something I'm an immigrant to this country. You don't disagree with the future that I'm laying out, you just disagree about the gun part, correct? No, no, I disagree with the future that you're laying out completely and totally and wholeheartedly. Okay, tell me. I am wildly optimistic. Look I was born in Israel. I came to this great country. I'm an immigrant here. I chose it. Uh, and the thing that makes, one of the many things that makes this country great 
is that this is a covenantal country. The name of this country in Hebrew is Atzot Habrit, the lands of the covenant. Uh, this is a country that believes itself very strongly, like Israel, by the way, they're the only two countries in the history of the world that believe this idea, that they're in a covenant with God for some special reason. That reason is to spread this great message. Are you crazy? You know American believes that. Oh, I believe deep down inside, most Americans believe that. Okay. We believe in American exceptionalism. We believe we're special. Even Barack Obama doesn't believe in it. But go ahead, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. He's Continue. the outlier. He's, yeah. he's, he's the exception to this. Wasn't he born in and, Kenya? No, let her, no. Oh, stop that. Come on. She's <laughs> kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. And, and I think that once you look at the history of this country, you realize that every hundred years or so, we renew this covenant. We did it in 1776, where we proclaimed freedom throughout the land. We did it in 1861, when we stood up to the scar of slavery. We did it in 1964, where we finished the work of, of dignity and, and human and civil rights. And we're doing it again right now, renewing core commitments in the face of a minority of our fellow Americans who believe very, very different things. I do not for one moment believe that the American future or the American Jewish future is grim. I think that the, the, the near immediate future is rocky. But I think, you know, you have so many Catholics and Christians and Hindus and, and Asians and Muslim Americans who have a very firm understanding of American greatness and why it's so special and are, and are just pulling through. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, the polls don't show that. Um, that's, that's, a very, that's a very sunny, optimistic uh, personality that you have there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I hope that you're right. I, I, it's, it's almost as if that's a religious point of view, is it? I believe it 100% is. But by the way, you're looking for evidence. Look, look at all our rappers. Like literally every single great rapper right now is rapping about Jesus. You know, these people are godly people. Listen to Chance the Rapper. These are people who are taking orders from or marching to the, the beat of a very different drum. And that to me is really where the majority of Americans are. And it's a, an outlook of belief. It's an outlook of optimism. And it's an outlook of, of working together with like-minded people. Very different than what you see in, you know, Hollywood or the New York Times or Columbia University, but much more American than anything else out there. Well, you know, anyone who knows me, knows that more than anything, I love to be right. And I want to thank you because you've motivated me to live till 2064. And I, <laughs> just so I could be there to say, you're wrong. You're wrong, man. <laughs> it didn't happen like you said. Uh, how old will you be? Well, you'll be 100. I'll be 102. <laughs> so, but, I, but I'm going to do it just to, just to rub your nose in it. Okay, Inshallah. listen, uh, I, I do hope that you're right. Um, Can I ask a question? I know Liel has yes, to go to his book tour. Um, so what, what's the immediate future here with Israel and Palestine? What, what's go, what, what do you see in the next, you know, first of all, how do we get out of this disaster? And I don't know, a, li a little bit forward. Uh, only that, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> in 30 seconds, can you just wrap that up for us? <laughs> well, if anybody can. Um, I, I will say this. I think the way forward is realizing and recognizing that what we're seeing right now is not a war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. It is a much more intricate, large-scale conflict between the so-called axis of resistance that involves Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen uh, and their allies in China and Russia and other, uh, you know, tyrannical, murderous, disastrous regimes. 
uh, and between the rest of the world. Uh, it is the fight of the Armenian against the Azeris. It is the fight of the Ukrainians against the Russians. It's the fight of us against Hamas. It's the same fight with different names all over the world. I think once the world realizes it, and I think, again, beheading babies has a really strange way of clarifying for people. But we don't... Outlines. Don't, don't make uh, me... I don't see it very swift. And I don't want to be one of those people correcting that story. But do we know that that story is true? Yes, for a fact. But not 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 the fifth, 40, 40, 51. What did they say first? I don't know. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It, do, it doesn't matter. We know we know that babies were tortured and killed and dismembered, and we, we know enough that's true. Um, whatever. So here we are. We're standing in in a war of uh, of civilization that includes the Americans and the Saudis and the Ukrainians and the Armenians and many others from many corners of the world against absolute tyranny and barbarism, which includes the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese and anyone who backs their benighted coalition. Yeah, Roger Waters uh, said that it's a false flag operation. Did you see that? That's right, yes. That, that, that fucking guy didn't write such good music. He, He's he, done with him. He is, <laughs> he is a tremendous talent um, <laughs> musically. But I, I won't buy any of his it. music, but any music that I happen to have, I'll listen to. Uh, I'll suffer through it if it comes on Spotify. Um, <laughs> or I'll listen to it on YouTube. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, anyway, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, tell us the name. By any, any, does, any, does the Talmud have any wisdom? What does the Talmud say about the trans issue and gender-affirming care? It must say something. There is a lot of transgender talk in the Talmud. Legit. There is? Yeah. And what does it say? Well, it basically uh, reminds us yet again uh, that gender is a biological fact, or sex, I should say, is a biological fact encoded into every cell of our bodies. It also reminds us that in a minority of the cases, there are people who are suffering from legitimate uh, conditions of, of not uh, kind of conforming to whatever the circumstances of their birth were. It, it urges us, obviously, to be very compassionate and caring towards these people, and it warns us uh, against this kind of confusion that uh, we could transcend all these categories like so many clothes that we put on and off. That is a very, very succinct uh, summation. Wait, that's real. I mean, that's really uh, in there. I mean, can you give us any any quotes of? of uh... Well, first of all, it's it's astonishing that it, it acknowledges that there are all kinds of conditions. It acknowledges hermaphrodites. It acknowledges people who are born with one set of genitalia but you know cannot connect to it. It acknowledges people who are who are intersex. It acknowledges all kinds of of uh, you know should we say deviations from from the biological norm. Uh, it I think then goes strongly to the biblical prohibition. Uh, against sort of confusing, if you will, uh, the, the sexes. The Torah famously says that you know men should not dress as women and women as men. Uh, do do with that as 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 you will. Uh, but to me, the thing that I take from it is is this outlook of first of all compa compassion, just to really look at these situations and say to yourself, judge every person according to their own condition and, and criteria, and and come out at it from a from a quality of mercy. Uh, and at the same time, remember that there are strong and irrefutable uh, laws of, of God and nature uh, that should not be contested for fun and pleasure. Did you really read the entire Talmud? I am uh, 
it's the Talmud is not something that you read. It's, it's not. It's not a book. Uh, my friend Jonathan Rosen called it uh, a net for catching God. Uh, it's not how many times you read it. It's how many times it goes through you. I'm I'm still making my way through it as I will till the day I die. It is an amazing thing now, that it exists, right? It's just amazing. Now, just just to clarify, uh, the Talmud is it has sometimes contradictory opinions from different rabbis so that it's sometimes okay so it's not necessarily a prescription of what to do it's sometimes just different theories that different rabbis one rabbi says this the other rabbi says that it's not sometimes i mean this is the thing it's it's literally on every page the genius of of the talmud i I will make this as, as as quick as i can uh the talmud was written at a stage in which the temple uh, the year 70 ce more or less the temple in jerusalem was burnt uh, by the Romans. And then the rabbis got together and asked themselves a seminal question of how do you save this religion, uh, which for 538 years was predicated on, you know, sacrifices in the temple. How do you save it now that the temple no longer exists? And they had two amazing insights. The first is you could take this entire religion and capture it in a book, which is already like an astonishing insight. You could take all these sacrifices and, and things that you used to do and rites and rituals and, and write them down and make people read them and, and remember them. But then they realized that if they only wrote down laws and rules, people would be turned off. They would say, ah, that doesn't appeal to me anymore. That doesn't apply to me anymore. That's not for me. So instead of writing down laws, they wrote down arguments. And they invite you to come in and argue with them. When you read a page of Talmud, you're entering uh, a thousand-year-long arguments between between Jews, between rabbis who lived hundreds of years apart, between every learner who's ever studied that page of Talmud. That's the genius thing. It's not about the answers. Fuck the answers. It's about better ways of asking questions. Okay, sir. Well, it's been a pleasure. Um, we'd love to have love to meet you in person if you're ever in the in the neighborhood. I would love that. Uh, it'd be nice to meet you in person. All right. Uh, so that's it. Uh, um, What's the name of the book again? One more time. How the Talmud Could Change Your Life. Surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. Right, get it on Amazon.com, but not on Shabbat. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you very much, sir. Email to podcast at Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.